We're going to be kicking off the new series today called What Does It All Mean? And what's so encouraging about it is that as you dig into this subject of apologetics, you begin to find that there are good answers for every objection to Christianity. And when that happens with one thing after another, it really builds your faith. And then when you hear something that challenges your faith, or you encounter something in the Bible that you don't quite understand, instead of panicking and saying, I guess it's all a lie, it's a house of cards, you go, there's a good answer if I do a little research, do a little work to find out what it is. And you don't freak out. One of the things I tell my kids is, listen, when your faith is challenged, you don't have to give an answer right on the spot. It's actually far more thoughtful and reflects far better on you if you will say, you know, I'm gonna look into that. And then you go and research it because nobody can be expected to know everything on the spot all the time. It's just not possible. So memes, I'm convinced that they are tiny assassins of frivolity created for the express purpose of killing my productivity. And yet, I I do love them. I love them so much. And if you've been living under a rock and you don't know what a meme is, it's currently in its current form, it meets this definition. A humorous image, video, piece of text, etc., that is copied, often with slight variations, and spread rapidly by internet users. And I wanna share a few examples that I enjoyed recently. Let's put the first meme up there. If you can't read, it's a throwback and it has pictures of, do you remember when like computer mice had wheels in them? And you'd have to take the, the ball out and actually clean it. And then at the bottom there, it has Elrond from Lord of the Rings and he's saying, I was there, Gandalf, it was 3,000 years ago. That's what he's saying, my, my, my kids don't get that meme really that much. Next one I enjoyed, classic dad joke right here. How much money do you have in your wallet right now? None, get it? None? Yeah, yeah, classic dad joke right there. And then probably my favorite one that I've seen recently, we can put this one up, uh, as it relates to marriage and relationships. I don't like that we're fighting, tell me you're sorry. That <laughs> seems uh, incredibly familiar, I'm sure, for many of us. Memes are one of the defining trends of the internet, and they have been for years. If you don't know, the internet is not generally very pro-Christian. And so those who find the idea of Christianity ridiculous, generally atheists or agnostics, love to share their own memes as a means of mocking the Christian faith. And even though memes are a more recent medium, the issues and objections these memes raise are actually very classic in nature. People have been challenging Christians with these things for a while, so I thought it would be helpful, fun, and interesting as an exercise to tackle some of these memes and address them head on. So let's imagine the scene. You're online, you are on social media, and one of your friends posts this. Let's take a look at the first meme here. They post this, picture of Horus, the Egyptian god, picture of Jesus, the original, the European copycat right there, white Jesus with the beard. And you think, oh, well, well, big deal. They're both images of somebody with a sheep over their shoulder. That, That doesn't really mean anything. But then you come across a meme like this next one, and it's a little bit more specific. It says, what? Osiris, son of God, was resurrected so that we could have eternal life? That's nonsense. Jesus, son of God, was resurrected so that we could have eternal life, you say? That sounds about right. And you go, hmm, well, that's that's a little weird. And then you come across something like this third one, which has way more detail. And if you can't read it, it's beginning to list Horus, Mithra, Krishna, 
all the similarities to Jesus. And then show the next one, Sydney, if you would. And it goes on, Dionysus, and then comparing them to Jesus Christ, ending with the epic attack, Christians, why you not at least original? To which I would say, why you not speak English correctly? But uh, apparently this person craves an intellectual debate while speaking like a four-year-old. And so they're listing all of these similarities and they're saying, well, I mean, Jesus is clearly a copycat. And, and maybe you see that and you begin to think, oh man, is, is Jesus just copied from other religious mythological figures like Horus, Mithrash, Krishna, and Dionysus? Did, did all these religions that came before Jesus really teach the same thing? And you don't know what to think because... You saw this on the internet. And the internet is the most credible source of information in existence. And so, so your faith is shaken. These memes are claiming that Jesus is a copycat, that he is a recycled redeemer whose life story was pulled together and fabricated from bits and pieces of other religious mythologies. The charge is serious. The charge is serious, but the claim is not. It's not a serious claim. And when we're done talking about this, you're going to be astounded that anyone ever uses this objection because there is not a shred of evidence to support it. Sometimes these types of memes are, are used to suggest that Jesus did not ever even exist. He's a complete fabrication. When I was cruising around online, the most popular conspiracy theory seems to be that it was invented by the Emperor Constantine for political purposes, or they don't actually give any motivation. They just imply that Jesus never existed. And on this first point, I don't want to spend too much time defending it because the claim can only be honestly described as a joke. There are pretty much no legitimately credentialed historians, Christian or secular, who hold this view. None. Eric Myers is an archeologist and emeritus professor in Judaic studies at Duke University. And he says, it's on your outlines, he says, I don't know any mainstream scholar who doubts the historicity of Jesus. That means who doubts that Jesus existed. The details have been debated for centuries, but no one who is serious doubts that he's a historical figure. So things like the miracles of Jesus and the deity of Jesus are a different subject of discussion, but regarding the facts like he was a real man who lived, preached, and was crucified in Judea, in Israel, at the time the gospel says he was, that's not really debated among serious scholars at all in any way. Whether they realize it or not, those who claim Jesus did not exist have put themselves in a similar corner as those who would claim that gravity does not actually exist. It's that ridiculous of a claim, and the correct information is as widely accepted by the experts as the theory of gravity is. There are more primary historical sources for the existence of Jesus than there are for the existence of Julius Caesar. The primary sources for the existence of Jesus date to within a couple of decades of his death, but when it comes to Alexander the Great, all we have are fragments of two works from about 100 years after his death. The truth is we base virtually everything we know about Alexander the Great 
on what historians wrote three to 500 years after his death. When Jesus was on the earth, the emperor was Caesar Tiberius. The primary sources that speak of Jesus outnumber those that speak of Caesar Tiberius 42 to 10. And I could bore you to death with name after name of men who wrote about Jesus within his lifetime and the lifetime of those who knew him. Those who claim that some random Jewish men invented a myth of Jesus around the time he was supposed to existed, supposed to have existed, cannot provide anything resembling a logical motive. They can't provide any good reason why this group of Jewish men would do that. The reason is simple because there is no logical motive. They are claiming that a group of Jewish men concocted a plan to create a fictional Jewish Messiah whose life story would be stolen from well-known pagan mythologies. Their plan was, allegedly, to get people to believe in this fictional savior in the region where this fictional savior was supposed to live, despite the fact that nobody outside of their small group would ever have met him or seen him in person, because he didn't exist. They made up stories about him ministering to crowds of tens of thousands, despite the fact that he didn't exist, and just hoped that nobody would ever put two and two together and say, hey, uh, I lived in Nazareth my whole life. This is total nonsense. Nobody called Jesus like ever lived there. This is complete nonsense. And they would do all this because it gained them power? Well, it didn't. Wealth? No, it didn't do that either. Political influence? Nope. Pleasures of the flesh like sex and parties? Nope. What did it get them? Persecution? Prison, torture, death, loss of property and homes, social rejection, loss of jobs, divorce, on and on and on the list goes. And yet, of this list of conspirators, the disciples, all but one died horrific deaths, being murdered for their message about Jesus. The only one who wasn't was John, and they tried to boil him alive in oil. That didn't work, so they just left him on a desert island. None of these guys recanted, even when it could have saved their lives. They didn't get any benefit from inventing this myth, and it cost them a horrific death, and to avoid that horrific death, they still wouldn't recant. Why? Simply put, there's no logical motive for a group of Jews to invent Jesus in the first century, and then cling to that message through persecution and even death. It doesn't make any sense on any level. There's no reason. So write this down. There's no logical motive for a group of Jews to invent and persist with a Jesus myth in the first century. There's no logical reason for them to do that. Anybody solving a crime, you're looking for three things if you watch enough crime TV. Motive means an opportunity. There is simply no motive. There's no motive. Well, I heard that Constantine invented Christianity for political reasons, and he's the one who stole from all those pagan mythologies and put them together. Again, I, I wanna give just a short answer on this one because it's just not a very good theory on any level, historical, logical, you name it. If you've been through our Revelation teaching, then you know that, that I actually agree that Constantine likely manipulated Christians for political gain. I personally suspect he made up his entire story about the vision God gave him because it won him the throne of Rome. And I think he did that for political reasons. I'd 
not convinced that he was a legitimate Christian. I hope I'm wrong. The problem is that Constantine doesn't come into the picture until the fourth century, almost 300 years after the death and claimed resurrection of Jesus. And the most obvious problem with this conspiracy theory is that historians have acquired an unbelievable number of primary and secondary sources of evidence for Christianity that predate the life of Constantine. Let me put it another way. We have physical original copies or near original copies of textual documents that prove Christianity existed centuries before Constantine was even born. Some of these sources are Christian, some of them are Jewish, some are neither, some are hostile to Christianity, some are heretical, but they all prove this theory to be absolute nonsense and leave no doubt that Christianity existed for centuries before Constantine was even born. So write this down. Constantine lived almost 300 years after the death of Jesus and the historical evidence for Christianity existing in the first century is beyond question, is beyond question. It's just total nonsense. If someone says Constantine invented it, all you have to say is, well, then how come Christianity existed for centuries before Constantine was even born, and how come we have historical artifacts that prove that fact? If a person is unwilling to believe that, then you've left, you've left the foundation of reason in that discussion. It's true that Constantine lays the groundwork that leads to the church fusing with the Roman state and creating the Roman Catholic Church. And it's also true that the abuses of power, wealth, and more under that system of the Catholic Church are well documented. But for the first three centuries of the church's existence, there were no social benefits. It was just persecution and martyrdom on a scale that we can't even comprehend today. And so if Christianity was a conspiracy, none of the conspirators saw any benefit from it. Nobody who was a Christian saw any social, financial, or political benefit from their Christianity until the fourth century when the church fused with the state. Furthermore, in the Middle Ages, the Protestants split from the Roman Catholic Church because of all those abuses and the event known as the Reformation. Let there be no confusion. The church and Christianity existed for centuries before Constantine was even born. Again, this is not a serious objection to Christianity. If your goal is to disprove the claims of Christianity, starting out by claiming that Jesus didn't even exist is not the way to go. Uh, that is the path of conspiracy theorists whose research does not even extend to the lengths of using Wikipedia. That's what we're talking about. If you wanna be taken seriously and research Jesus seriously, you can't claim that he didn't exist because it's absolutely ridiculous. Even in the view of secular historians, you can't claim that he was invented or that he was even invented by Constantine. The evidence against that is overwhelming and no historian would take you seriously if you shared that theory with them. So let's go back to the recycled redeemer objection. Jesus exists, he wasn't invented by anyone else, but was, was his mythology stolen from other things? Was he maybe just a normal man and all these other things were ascribed to him that were stolen from these other religions? This may shock you, but I suspect that many of these meme creators may not be credentialed historians. I have a suspicion. So I'm going to share with you how actual credentialed historians address this issue, and then I'll tell you what their academic research has revealed. 
You see, when a real historian is searching for the truth, the one thing they don't do is hop on Instagram and search for whatever subject they're looking for. They don't sift through memes that tend to cite each other in endless circles. Real credentialed historians, what they do is they go back to the earliest records of these ancient accounts. That's what they call primary sources. So that they can find out what the myths actually were. So they're gonna take a myth, the myth of Mithras, Dionysus, Horus. What are the oldest records that we have of this myth and how do those records describe the myth? So that we can get the myth right, that's what they do. This way we can be clear on what the sources actually say about all of these pagan mythologies. And let me summarize what historians have discovered. When they looked closely at the primary sources, two things became obvious. Two things that are actually startling when you consider how popular this recycled redeemer view is. Firstly, the myths that actually predate Jesus' time, in other words, the myths that existed before Jesus came to the earth, those myths bear virtually no resemblance to the specific details of Jesus' life. Almost all of the alleged similarities turn out to be non-existent. That last meme that I put up there, all those things that they list, almost all of those are untrue. You go back to the original myth and they're simply not true. They're not in the myths. Almost all of the claims that these memes make regarding supposed similarities are flat out false. They're getting the details of the myths wrong. A professor and historian named Trigiv Mettinger conducted the most recent exhaustive study of this issue. And when he began investigating the views of modern scholars, he discovered that there was a near universal consensus that there were no dying and rising gods that preceded Christianity. They all post-dated the first century. They all actually came after Jesus. And so Professor Mettinger had a similar reaction that many of us would probably have. He said, wait a minute, I can think of at least three, if not maybe five. What about Horus? What about Tammuz from the ancient Babylonian mystery religion? But after combing through all the accounts, all the primary sources and all of the evidence, Mettinger concluded that none of them served as parallels to Jesus. I'll explain more. Speaking about Mettinger's research, historian Michael Lycona said this. He said they are far different from the reports of Jesus rising from the dead. They occurred in the unspecified and distant past and were usually related to the seasonal life and death cycle of vegetation. In contrast, Jesus' resurrection isn't repeated, isn't related to changes in the seasons, and was sincerely believed to be an actual event by those who lived in the same generation of the historical Jesus. In addition, Mettinger concludes that there is no evidence for the death of the dying and rising gods as vicarious suffering for sins. So his point is that when you begin to look at the details, they're nothing like the account of Jesus. To say, oh, well clearly they stole one from the other would be like me describing World War II to you and you saying, well, well wait a minute. Uh, I happen to have researched World War I and the similarities here are obvious. You've got countries fighting, they're firing weapons at each other, they're trying to kill each other. They're fighting over territory. Clearly, one event is just a copy of the other and it's probably not even real. 
we know that they're completely different things with completely different details when you begin to get just below the surface. And that's his point here. After you've taken out all of the claims of similarities that are non-existent, that are just wrong, any similarities that remain are far too general to be significant. Professor Mettinger summed up his research like this. It's on your outlines. There is, as far as I am aware, no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mythological construct drawing on the myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world. So write this down. Mythologies that predate Jesus' life bear virtually no resemblance to the specific details of Jesus' life. Almost all of the alleged similarities turn out to be non-existent. Non-existent. Secondly, the mythical accounts of the mystery religion gods that do actually bear some resemblance to Jesus' life, unfortunately, for the theory, show up after his time. This fact creates a, a big problem for the recycled redeemer objection because it obviously makes it look like those myths were actually copied from the Gospels and not the other way around because clearly the child cannot come before the parent. If you're gonna claim that one copied the other, the recycled version must appear in the historical record after the myth that it's supposed to be copying, not the other way around. So write this down. Pagan mythologies that do bear some significant resemblance to Jesus' life appear only after his time. They appear only after his time. And I should add too that whenever humans would, would dream or talk about or long for a God to visit them, because as far back as you can go, as far as there was a belief in deities, people would begin thinking about well, how did this object get here? How did that mountain get there? Maybe the gods visited us long ago and they would create these fables or come up with these prophecies. There's a God who's going to visit us. And they would think and talk about and create these myths about what would it be like if a God visited earth? And if you're having that discussion, there are going to be some very obvious things in every culture in the world that you would expect a God visiting earth to do. One of the obvious ones is that a visiting God would perform miracles and signs and wonders, for example. Pretty much everyone would expect a God visiting earth to do that because it's how they would prove that they're God, right? That would be an expectation that everyone would have of a God, just like you would expect a visiting God to be stronger than a normal person. So the fact that a few characteristics like that show up in mythologies, the third meme that I showed you, the most recent one, when they list some things, for some of them, the only similarity is things like performed miracles. And my point here is that there's nothing unusual about that because any myth of a visiting God would expect them to do some things that people can't do. That's what makes them a God. So you can't look at that and go, oh, well, this God, it says they perform miracles and Jesus performed miracles. See what I'm getting at? You can't do that. It's not even a sensical uh, distinguishing characteristic. And historians don't consider these commonly shared expectations to be significant or unique characteristics because they appear in virtually all mythologies that involve gods coming to earth. So write this down. Virtually all myths involving a god coming to earth share some common expectations. 
they share some common expectations, miracles, signs and wonders, etc. Historians do not consider these to be unique or significant characteristics. So here's what you're finding when people say these are the similarities. Firstly, like 95 plus percent of them are, are flat out wrong. They're not in the original myths. You can take them out. The similarities that are there, way too general to matter. It's like, well, Horus rose from the dead. That's nothing like Jesus rising from the dead when you look beyond that very first surface level. The distinguishing characteristics are very different. The characteristics that are shared too then, you can take out all these ones that would be expected of any God visiting earth. And very quickly, all these similarities tend to disappear. Now finally and decisively, there are some massive logical problems with the recycled redeemer view. And every single one of us is intelligent enough to perceive them. That's the good news if we'll stop for a minute and think. Now to help us understand the point I'm going to make, I'm gonna tell you one of my favorite stories. It's an incredible true story about a coincidence that is in the truest sense of the word, unbelievable, unbelievable. In fact, it is so bizarre that I suspect many of you will go home this evening and you will check this out on Google because you're not going to believe me when I tell you this. But this really happened, it really happened. I didn't get this in an email that was forwarded through a bunch of people and I didn't get this from a meme on Facebook, okay? In 1898, a man named Morgan Robertson published a novel titled Futility. And it told the story, a fictional story, about the transatlantic voyage of a cruise ship traveling from England to New York. It told the story of a massive ship, the largest floating vessel in the world that was also considered, according to the book, indestructible. Despite its reputation, as the story goes, in the middle of the night, in April, with three massive propellers driving the ship forward, the quote, unsinkable ship collided with an iceberg and sank to the bottom of the ocean. The tragedy, of course, was compounded because the number of lifeboats on the ship was half of what was needed for its capacity because it was considered unsinkable, resulting in more than half of the passengers perishing. Here's the craziest part. In the book, the name of the ship was the Titan. The Titan. That's the fiction. Here's the fact. 14 years after Robertson published Futility, the world's largest luxury liner, the indestructible Titanic, departed England on a transatlantic voyage to New York in April. In the middle of the night, the Titanic's triple propellers drove the ship into an iceberg and it sank to the bottom of the ocean. Since the Titanic was fitted with less than half the number of lifeboats needed for its capacity, more than half of its passengers were lost. The coincidences are enough to make one believe in time travel. They really are. But in reality, it's simply a case of astonishing coincidence. And it teaches us a crucial lesson that I don't want you to miss. It's this, regardless of the similarities between the book and the real life event, 
the real life event cannot be dismissed as a fabrication simply because the first was a fiction. Are you tracking with me? The fact that the fiction came first changes nothing about the facts of the real life event. One has no effect on the other. Whether or not the details of the Titanic's disaster are accurate can only be determined by its own evidence. You have to look at the facts individually. You can speculate all you want about the similarities to the book written 14 years earlier, but that will get you nowhere because it won't tell you anything about the reliability of the newspaper reports that described the Titanic's demise on April 15th, 1912. Write this down and we'll talk about it some more. If a real life event were preceded by a fictional account of the exact same event, it would have no bearing on the reality of the real life event. Here's what I mean by that. If you have a real life event happen, but years before that real life event happened, somebody described that exact event happening in detail in a work of fiction, it wouldn't change anything about the reality of what actually happened. It wouldn't change anything. Let's look at this same point from a different angle. Now imagine you introduce yourself to a stranger, you're out in public and you're sitting down somewhere together and you begin sharing bits of your life story with them and then he stops and he says, listen, I've heard enough. You are a liar and an imposter. Now why would he do this? Well, indignant he explains that in the past three months, 12 other people have tried to tell him the exact same story that you have. 12 other people have claimed to live where you live, at the address that you live at, to have the name that you have. So you pull out your driver's license to prove what your name is, to prove where you live, but he ignores it. His mind is made up. He's already labeled you a fraud like the rest, no matter what evidence you produce to try and change his mind. You'd probably be offended, but maybe not too much because you'd, you'd be more mystified. You'd, you'd just be absolutely stunned because clearly the fact that other people have lied proves nothing about whether or not you're lying. The fact that there have been imposters in the past doesn't make it impossible for you to be the real thing. You've gotta be evaluated on your own evidence, on your own merits. If we don't have to do that, if that's not logical, then we should really just reform our entire justice system because we could make it way more efficient by just skipping trials for people who've already been guilty of crimes in the past, right? He pled not guilty the last three times, Your Honor, and he was found guilty every time. Fair point, let's just skip the trial. 10 years in prison, let's get this thing done. Case closed. Now we know, we all understand, that would be egregious, that would be a miscarriage of justice. Why? Because the evidence must be evaluated independently, right? In the justice system, it doesn't matter what crimes they've been tried for before, you've got to evaluate the evidence of the crime they're being charged with right now. But what people want to do with Jesus is even worse because they want to take myths from other places, other peoples, other times, and say because those were myths, Jesus must be a myth too. That's not even remotely objective. That's not at all how any serious historian or journalist would seek to determine the truth. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, you have to prove that a story is a lie before it makes any sense 
to speculate on how the lie originated in the first place. In the same way, before you can start discussing where the fiction of Jesus' life came from, you would have to first show that the life of Jesus was fiction. That is the logical mistake that this recycled redeemer objection makes. Write this down. Before speculating on the sources of Jesus' fictional life, one must first prove that his life was indeed fiction. You gotta prove that his life was indeed fiction. But even if someone produced a thousand parallels between Jesus and ancient myths, that alone would not be enough to prove that Jesus is just another legend. If the similarities were remarkable, it would make sense to look more deeply into the issue. But what I hope you're understanding is that even if there were a thousand similarities, that would have no impact, that would do nothing to prove or disprove the historical Jesus, nothing. First things must always come first. You cannot begin, begin by assuming that Jesus is a myth and then speculate on the origins of the myth. You first have to prove that he's a myth. But the recycled redeemer objection says, no, let's just begin by assuming he's a myth. The ancient historical documents about Jesus, such as the gospels, must be assessed on their own merits first. You cannot simply dismiss them with fanciful comparisons to ancient myths about dying and rising gods. To do that would be like picking up a newspaper the day after the Titanic sunk and throwing it away as you scoff. I've read the novel Futility. I'm not an idiot. The Titanic has sunk. Oh, that's a good one. It would be as stupid as doing that to say, well, there were myths before, so Jesus must be a myth. We'll start with that. You gotta evaluate it on its own evidence. Now, here's another logical issue that might have occurred to you. I hinted at it earlier, but if you lived in the first century and were trying to invent a myth that would convince fiercely monotheistic, Torah-observant Jews that their Messiah had arrived, that was your goal, how would it make any sense to draw the story you were inventing about this Messiah from well-known pagan accounts of dying and rising gods, especially when those same Jews expected a Messiah who would be a conquering king, not a Messiah who would be murdered and rise from the dead? it simply makes no logical sense. It would be the most counterproductive myth that they could have made up for that audience. It would have been wildly offensive to the very people they were trying to mislead. So write this down. The gospel accounts of the life of Jesus would have been the most counterproductive story a group of conspirators could have come up with for their target audience. Doing things like drawing from pagan myths for a Jewish audience presenting a suffering savior instead of a conquering king. It would make no logical sense. In summary, the recycled redeemer hypothesis is based on unreliable facts and logically unsound reasoning. So what do the real historians say? What's the verdict about Jesus, the man of history, from those who are actually skilled and certified in the craft of history? Professional historians do not believe that the New Testament account is simply a retelling of an ancient myth or an amalgamation of ancient myths. Not every historian endorses every detail of the Gospels. That's true. Many academics reject the supernatural elements for reasons 
that are completely different to the reliability of the record. That's a different issue. However, scholars across the spectrum overwhelmingly agree that Jesus of Nazareth was a man of history, a real man who walked the earth, and the Gospels, for the most part, tell his story accurately. Pretty much every historian agrees about that. Will Durant is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who wrote the most successful work of history in history, the 11-volume The Story of Civilization. Durant concludes his material on Jesus by saying this. I think I put on your outline. No one reading these scenes, he's talking about the Gospels, no one reading the Gospels can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teachings of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. The recycled Redeemer objection really asks this question. Underneath it is this question. Why would we view the stories of Mithras, Horus, Dionysus, and other pagan mystery saviors as fables, yet treat a similar story about a Jewish carpenter as factual? Why would we do that? Why would we be like, oh, these are all fables, but this one, oh, this is clearly fact? Well, the answer is simple. And it's one of the most important points, but it's easy to miss because it's so obvious. Why should we evaluate the story of Jesus as factual when we treat the pagan myths as fables? Here's why, you can write this down. Because no reasonable person believes that the mythological figures in question actually existed. In contrast, there is an abundance of reliable historical evidence for the existence of Jesus and his works. No reasonable person, even the person spreading these memes, no reasonable person actually believes that Horus, Mithras, and Dionysus actually existed. Whereas no serious historian, secular or Christian, believes that Jesus did not exist. And if the primary source evidence for Jesus the man is compelling, then it does not matter how many ancient myths share similarities. The point is that you're comparing things we know are fictional to a person history proves is real. Regarding Jesus, I would challenge you to show me any other person who appears in the historical record with such regularity who turned out in the final analysis to be fiction. The idea of getting your 15 minutes of fame in the ancient world didn't really exist. Why so many mentions of Jesus from such a wide variety of sources? Here's why. Jesus of Nazareth was a man of history who made a profound impact on history. So as it turns out, there is no good reason for any doubt that Jesus was a true man of history or to think that the real Jesus was completely different to the one depicted in the Gospels. According to their own testimony, the Gospel writers were not making up stories, but were reporting their personal encounters with Jesus. That's why they wrote things like, that which was from the beginning we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, that's Jesus. The life was manifested 
and we have seen and bear witness that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. They were not testifying to myths, but to what the book of Acts says was truth and reason about events that were not done in a corner. People who think Jesus never existed are simply not acquainted with the ample research done by even secular historians that provides abundant evidence for his life. The idea that Jesus did not exist at all is drivel, and real historians know this. If you want to know why I believe we should trust the gospel writer's accounts, we've studied that at this church. You can go to the website, mynewhope.ca, check out a message mini-series called Why Should I Believe Anything the Gospels Say? And even if you don't check out that whole series, just listen to the message titled Top 10 Reasons We Know the Gospel Writers Told the Truth. And I think you'll find that if you'll take the time to examine the evidence, you'll find it to be overwhelming. Bottom line is this, the idea that Jesus was copied from pagan myths, flat out untrue, demonstrably untrue. History proves this to be untrue. So when you see this, you don't need to feel threatened. You can just begin to Google some of the claims and the internet's fantastic. There's so many good apologetics resources that'll come up. Someone says, Jesus is a copy of Mithras. Just Google, is Jesus a copy of Mithras? You'll find a whole bunch of articles explaining why he's not. The evidence is on our side because truth is on our side. And so we never have to worry when we hear a claim that makes us nervous. And we'll talk about a couple more of these claims in the coming weeks. But with that, let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that your son Jesus is the way He's the truth and he's the life. And he's the only way to have access to you to be made right with you. And so Father, we thank you that we don't have to fear any attack or any claim, uh, intellectual or scientific, historical or anything. We don't have to fear any attack on our faith because we know that the truth is on our side. So help us not to be defensive, help us to be thoughtful and considerate, uh, to do research where we need to do it. And Lord, if we're not there, may we all move toward the place where we can honestly say we are Christians because it is true. Because when you break it down, you examine it, you research it, you will discover that it is true. Father, thank you that you are the truth. And Lord, I pray for every need represented in this room that you will meet it as we gather together as your church this evening, that you'll provide supernaturally and practically what is needed. We love you and we thank you so much for loving us, Lord. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. 
And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.